Welcome to The Feast. I'm Laura Carlson. You know, for a long time, we avoided doing a show about Tuscany. Because, really, it's a little on the nose for food history, isn't it? With glasses full of impeccable Chianti, beautiful olives all gathered around a table with heaps of pasta, vegetables, cheese, and meat. So often when folks imagine this stereotypical Italian scene, whether they know it or not, they're thinking about Tuscany. Now, Tuscany is a central region of Italy, with its capital in the famous Renaissance town of Florence. And going back as far as the Renaissance, for folks outside of Italy, it has become the embodiment of traditional Italian culture. It's food, certainly it's wine, and perhaps above all, it's lifestyle. But how did Tuscany get this reputation? Why, if you were to ask any person on the street in North America, maybe England, or South Africa, to name one region of Italy, why is Tuscany the first, and in some cases, the only one folks can name? Well, the reason, unsurprisingly perhaps, may have to do with the area's long, long history. Specifically, of course, for our purposes, it's culinary history. Tuscany's roots go so far back, they predate the Romans by quite a few centuries. And today, those pre-Roman cooks and herders and farmers, a.k.a. the Etruscans, those are the folks we're going to be talking about. You see, Tuscany, or Toscana, takes its name from that early civilization, one of the first we know settled the area. The Etruscans settled in the middle of what would now be called the Italian Peninsula almost 3,000 years ago, centuries before the Romans. Now, the Etruscans were an interesting lot. From what we can gather from archaeology and other few sources we have about them, we know they were farmers and herders. They grew olives, they herded sheep. They were also traders, sending ships all over the Mediterranean, down to Egypt and all the way over to what is now modern France. And they knew how to have a good time. Funeral paintings that showed lavish banquets, where guests reclined on couches, very similar to the Greeks, drinking wine, enjoying finely roasted meats. And we know they were probably a pretty educated lot. Well, at least we think so. Their language, Etruscan, is still a mystery to scholars. And for the most part, undecipherable. The one book we have from the Etruscans, written entirely on linen, we still can't read. Now, the Etruscans built their cities and communities in this beautiful, verdant, fertile region. Great for growing and herding, accessible to the sea with that fabulous temperate climate. Picture perfect. Only problem was, this Eden-like area was also appealing real estate to just about everyone around, including a little group of folks, you may have heard of them, the Romans. After a few years of warfare, some not-so-successful treaties, the Etruscan culture was more or less part and parcel absorbed into the ever-expanding Roman state. But even though the Etruscan political world may have been gone, their agriculture, viniculture, and of course culinary culture survived long after the Roman Empire had faded away. 
There are still traces of Etruscan methods of herding, of growing, of making wine and cheese and olive oil. Etruscan wine-making stones, for example, carved from volcanic rock, can still be found sprinkled throughout the region. And the sheep, the grapes, and the olives, the things that make Tuscan cuisine so internationally famous today, well, those were the bedrocks of a culinary culture 3,000 years in the making. These millennia-old Etruscan food and wine traditions have fascinated chefs, anthropologists, archaeologists, and winemakers from all over the world, some to the extent that they've actually moved to Tuscany to experience and work in this historic region, making wine or olive oil according to these ancient traditions. And this is a story that typifies my guest today, Charlotte Horton. Now, Charlotte may actually be living the Tuscan dream. She has bought and restored not one, but two Tuscan castles and has been making award-winning wine in the region for over 20 years. Her castles are gathering spaces where families, as well as members of the food and wine industry, can stay and learn about the enduring influence of the Etruscan way of life. And this November, one of Charlotte's castles, the Castello di Potentino, will play host to an even bigger discussion of Etruscan culinary traditions. The Terroir Tuscany, an international gathering of over 60 journalists, trendsetters, and chefs to rediscover ancient Etruscan food and farming practices. Learning how to apply these traditional, ancient techniques to 21st century food systems. I had the opportunity to chat with Charlotte from her castle in Tuscany, where we talked about what led her to become a Tuscan winemaker, how she became involved in the Terroir Tuscany Symposium, and finally, how ancient Etruscan wine culture can be found even today throughout the hills of Tuscany. From the volcanic winemaking stones that litter the region, to the enduring folk songs that celebrate the grapes, the vines, and of course, the Tuscan way of life. One of the things that I learned um, early on in Italy when I first moved, which was about 30 years ago, I came to live in a very rural situation in, in remote Italy. Everyone, all, all of the local people that I encountered, they were all farmers and shepherds. They made everything they ate. So they had their own wine, had their own pigs, so they made their own salami and prosciutto, they had their own sheep, they had their own cheese, they had their own olive oil, they had fruit, they had a vegetable garden. They even made their own chickpea flour and polenta growing their maize. This meant that they had a, an extraordinary independence and an extraordinary sense of discrimination because they knew that the cheese from that particular field where there was that particular type of grass would be sweeter. They knew that you didn't leave the cheese on the windowsill to dry where the Scirocco wind blew because that meant it would go, it would get worms. They knew that you, you had to leave it where the Tramontana, which was the cold, dry wind blows. I really wanted to, to learn from them these things because I felt that they possibly were things that were going to go to disappear. And of course, you know, bit by bit, they did. And um, health and safety rules and uh, for economic reasons, all supermarkets came in. And unfortunately, there's not so much of that culture left in Tuscany. So since I was about seven or eight, I've been coming to this area. We always were in the countryside. 
But some of my early memories were of our neighbours who had two large white oxen in in their on their ground floor in a stable, and they used to plough the fields with the enormous oxen. So I, and that was something I never forgot. It was always very much in my memory because the Etruscans used to use oxen for ploughing. So to see that type of continuous tradition was rather extraordinary. I think it's always had a bit of an influence on me in the vestiges of this very ancient culture and how there was an enormous amount of evidence of a continuation and a discon- without any discontinuation, but a continuous tradition of farming that was surrounding me. It was a type of farming that really dated from about 3,000 years ago. And to see the vestiges of that in modern-day Tuscany, to me, were always absolutely fascinating. The Etruscans um, were a civilization that were pre-Roman. They founded the city of Rome, but the Latins, who then took Rome from them, um, conquered them, became known as the Romans. But the Etruscans actually founded founded Rome. There was civilization that really... um, really started to uh, become important culturally in Tuscany about 3,000 years ago. It's thought that they came from northern Turkey. Some people think that they were indigenous. But even the Romans wrote about the agriculture that the Etruscans practiced. Quite honestly, it's the same the same agriculture that one is surrounded by in Tuscany. Most of the food is pretty much the same. So they were famous for the cultivation of olives and vines. So wine and olive oil, which is still a very Tuscan Tuscan uh, product. The other thing that they were famous for was the introduction of apiculture. So they actually brought honeymaking to, to the area that is now modern-day Tuscany. The Roman writers attested to this. And they also described how the Etruscans were responsible for uh, cultivating sheep and uh, raising sheep and making uh, cheese from sheep's milk and also making things from the wool. Etruscan artifacts and archaeological excavations confirm their cultivation and appreciation of olives, grapes and sheep. One of the most famous artifacts recovered from the Etruscan period is, of all things, an intricately carved model of a sheep's liver, known as the liver of Piacenza, which was probably used for predicting the future or other religious purposes. Other archaeological analysis from Etruscan graves, not to mention murals depicting banquets and feasts, help us to understand a bit of what Etruscans would have enjoyed for food and drink. Now, Charlotte sees a direct link between these artifacts, some of which could be found in her very own castle, and the traditional Tuscan cuisine and lifestyle she experienced when she first came to the region a few decades ago. Well, I think it, it's very interesting because most of it is actually really what was still eating in Tuscan. So, as I was saying, the sheep cheese-based um, dishes, um, ricotta, now, another good example is spelt or einkorn, which is known as farro, um, which was an Etruscan grain. And 
we still eat it. The Tuscan still eat it. It's part of the Tuscan diet still. So we're discovering more about what type of uh, herbs and what type of breads they made through archaeological discoveries. But interestingly enough, most of their diet is still is still what we we eat and what is eaten in some areas of the Mediterranean. The meat, they, they a lot of hunted meat, so wild boar, hare, um, a lot of the game, which is still eaten here. Most of the fish that they used to eat is still eaten um, on the coast here. They the pig is really was one of their main staples. Guinea fowl, chicken, obviously not turkey. Most of the vegetables, a lot of cabbage, a lot of salads. Those are the same, obviously not potatoes and tomatoes. I think something that's very important about the Etruscans is that they were wonderful observers of nature. They they lived very close to nature. They were constantly observing. So obviously all science and all agriculture is is really based on, on observation. I think that the Etruscans were very sensitive to where they were that meant that they would be looking and seeing what plants were growing, how they were growing. And I think that's why they were, they were so successful at agriculture. They, they were famous for reading the lightning, reading what, what was called aeromancy, which was reading the flight of birds and in, interpreting what it, what it meant. So there's this wonderful closeness to nature. They, they mined, they, had, uh, they made metal, they had all sorts of materials from linen and they made things out of out of hemp, so a flax material. They made wool clothes, wool hats. So all of those skills were based on working with natural materials and being able to grow them and observe and see what the qualities of, of these natural materials were and what, what, what you could do with them. They certainly had interesting, very interesting ways of founding cities and deciding where they were going to live based on their observations. Was the water good? Were were there animals there? What sort of plants were there? So one of the things I would think is very interesting about when they decided to settle somewhere, they would obviously observe what the vegetation was like and whether there was good water and whether there was spontaneous growth of the vine. They also used to do things like they would leave a piece of meat out for a few days and see whether it how quickly whether it went rotten to test whether the um, the climate was good. So there were all sorts of things that really, in in a way, were early science. The Romans thought they were rather obese, a bit a bit fat, um, and and rather luxurious and indulgent because they had so much food. Because Etruria was Felix Etruria, you know, happy blessed Etruria because so much grew here. That was reflected in in their ability to to create culture and they were always eating twice a day, which the Romans, who were rather Puritan, thought was absolutely shocking, lying down supine um, in these wonderful symposiums, lying on beds and eating and having servants and drinking and singing and having music. The Romans thought this was terribly indulgent and actually used to call them pinguid or obese. The Etruscans, uh, and that was the real sign that that their civilization worked, and that they'd chosen good land would produce for them. Knowledge about Etruscan living comes down to us in both Greek and Roman texts that describe the opulence and overall good living the Etruscans enjoyed. 
In the first century BCE, the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus wrote, As they inhabit a land fertile in fruits of all kinds and cultivated assiduously, they enjoy an abundance of agricultural produce, which not only is sufficient for themselves, but by its excess leads them to unbridled luxury and indolence. For twice a day they have tables sumptuously dressed and laid with everything that can contribute towards delicate living. Even the Roman historian Livy wrote dismissively that the Etruscan elite spent most of their leisure enjoying themselves in entertainments on the most lavish scale. Yeah, that's also a fascinating part of the, the Etruscan history. They were, they were also great traders. So they were trading um, with the Phoenicians, with the Egyptians. They, they found um, Etruscan Amphora up in the Black Sea, where they were probably trading a bit for, for bronze. People these days think, think you know that just because they were they were on on boats and didn't have cars and airplanes that um, they didn't really go anywhere, which is not true at all. The Etruscans were trading everywhere. The other thing that's very interesting about the Etruscans is because they they developed the use of ceramics, they were able to export wine and oil and grains, a lot of the the produce that, that came from Felix Etruria. And one of their main exports was wine. And it was dry red wine. It was unlike the Greek wine, which was very sweet. Actually, their main, and this is a thing that's always shocks people, the main export area for the Etruscans was France. The Gauls did not grow wine. And they loved the Etruscan, Etruscan wine. So one of the main areas um, of, of export was, was France. It is very likely they've just found one of these winemaking stones in a colony, an Etruscan colony in the south of France. What Charlotte is talking about here are large stone basins or vats found throughout Tuscany and only recently in southern France. And they are believed to have been the original presses for making Etruscan wine. Now in Tuscany... These are basins that have been carved from the local volcanic rock, which is known as Peperino. Tuscany is near an inactive volcano, after all. Folks would use their feet in these basins to crush the grapes, and the stones are colloquially called pestaroles. Now, as far as France goes and its connection to Etruscan wine, archaeologists have recently discovered not only amphora that date to the Etruscan period, roughly 500 to 475 BCE, but also a limestone press that looks suspiciously like those found in Tuscany, which, in Italy at least, has led to endless bragging rights that the Italians were responsible for the original French wine. But these volcanic pestaroles have a specifically personal connection for Charlotte. Imagine her surprise when she discovered her very own Etruscan volcanic pestarole underneath her castle. As a winemaker and a devotee of Etruscan tradition, Charlotte couldn't help but experiment making wine in her Etruscan pestarole. Because of the rough, granular texture of the stone, the wine she made from the pestarole process was almost crystal clear an ancient technique that surprisingly rivals what can be accomplished from even the most advanced 21st century winemaking technology. But what's clear from these pestarole stones, the wine amphora, not to mention their survival in sites throughout the Mediterranean, is that the process of making Etruscan wine 
was something folks were interested in imitating. And the final product was easily traded far beyond the reaches of central Italy. The Romans would have then taken it absolutely everywhere um, once they invaded invaded France, because they were always also with wine growing in, in England. They also took, you know, cultivated wine wherever they wherever they went. Now, I think that one of I'm actually a winemaker really is my my main thing, although I get up to all sorts of other other activities. I've always thought that wine Really, if you can grow a, a, a if you can grow wine, if you can cultivate a vine, it's a good place for humans to live. Humans can live there; they can survive there. If if you can manage to grow a vine, it means that the climate is right. It means that there's water. It means that there's good soil. It means that it's a healthy situation. So I'm sure that's also one of the reasons why why wine is sacred because it's it. It signifies that life. It signifies that you can you can survive um, and you can create your community. So it's a, it's a symbol also of community. It's about living together. It's about eating together. It's about sharing. Um, it's about communicating. The whole concept of conviviality is very very important. And of course, the community that sings together stays together. And all the better if you're singing about wine. In central Italy, including Tuscany, choirs made up of both men and women travel throughout the region, performing a traditional polyphonic style of singing. Unsurprisingly, many of these songs are not only about wine, but the choirs will request a glass or two of your best vintage before performing. You know, to get the vocal cords warmed up. So... I started doing a series of concerts because this is a Mediterranean tradition, um, this type of singing. I've done, I started doing a series of concerts with polyphonic singers from other areas of the Mediterranean. So it's a very strong tradition in, in Sardinia, in Albania, in other parts of Italy, in Corsica, um, in Croatia, Greece as well, um, and obviously the, the, the homeland of all of this the Republic of Georgia. What is very strange is I invite these groups, these singing groups over, and um, we always do a wine tasting with them of our, of our wine. We always form very great, great bonds and friendships um, through the singing and the wine. But the extraordinary thing is uh, the winemaking stones that we have in the valley are also in most of the places where they have this Singing. They have them in Sardinia, they have them in Albania, and they also have them in the Middle East. But I've just had a choir of 18 Georgian singers who also love to, they have to drink wine when they're singing. They love wine, most of their songs are about wine. When I did the wine tasting with them, I, I was showing them pictures of our wine making stones. And I said, Do you know what? Is it at all possible? that you have these winemaking stones in the Republic of Georgia as well. And they all went, yes, 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 we have them, we have them, immediately produced photographs. So these are really, really old, really old, archaic connections. So the wine, the type of countryside that produces wine, and probably almost some type of sacred singing in celebration of, of wine. There's probably some ritual connection. 
Now, we couldn't very well describe this fantastic polyphonic wine-singing tradition and not give you a little taste of it. Charlotte was kind enough to send over one of the recordings from the Georgian Schilda Choir's recent performance at her castle. Try enjoying this with your favorite glass of Chianti, or perhaps a nice Georgian vintage. I just discovered something that's really extraordinary um, of the Georgian singers. So the, the women that sing, they also use songs to, to cure. They have songs for curing. They have songs for curing certain diseases. And that in itself is absolutely fascinating. The male choirs, the songs are so strong and powerful. These wonderful voices. that it's almost like a purification. When, when they did the concert here, I was kind of like reverberating all night. I mean, it was so powerful. Someone came up to me and said, you know, it's just, I feel cleansed. I feel it's some type of almost like a purification um, that you get through this extraordinary vibration with these wonderful tonalities. And that was, that was also extremely interesting that there's a, a sense that, that the wine, the community, the singing is also a cleansing. It's a purifying thing. It's bringing people together. I also discovered this extraordinary thing that the ladies came up to me and they said, in Georgia, the garden in the Garden of Eden, not an apple tree. And it's what, really? And they said, no, it's a vine. And that is really interesting. And they gave me, you know, they have you have these little um, votary cards. They said, and this is our Madonna. And they gave me one of these little votary cards. And it had a picture like an, uh, a Greek icon, orthodox icon, of the Madonna with a bunch of grapes and Jesus. It's so fascinating. And, and how did I get to know that? Through wine and song. And you know what? They were just, they all sat down and they were all chatting away and singing at the table and drinking and eating. And they were just like food and wine, talking to people. That, that, yeah, so... It's not only the same sort of similar cultures food-wise because, they, you know, and wine and they also like make dumplings like tortelli and et cetera. They made some for us, which was great. It's about a way of life. It's about a sensibility that that is an important thing, that you sharing your food. You know, in, in Italian company, compagni, yeah, it comes from, you know, when you say, I'm in good uh, compania, I'm in good company, it means with bread, compan. So I think that really for us in this day and age, for us to be able to look at an example of the type of relationship 
that sustains both nature and man in a rather joyful way is really something that I think we can probably learn, learn a lesson from. Using the Etruscans as a model, this recognition, investigation, and appreciation of culturally rooted foodways is at the very heart of the upcoming Terroir Tuscany that will meet at Charlotte's Castle in November 2018. We're going to have at the Terroir Symposium a series of speakers, and we're going to start with looking at how really the first signs of civilization really come out of man's relationship with nature and his ability to to cultivate. So cultivation is culture. Culture really creates a relationship with the, the environment that you have, which creates food, which then creates society and civilization. So the, the basic argument is that we, we really, man has always really been very dependent on his relationship with nature. And it seems that we're getting very, very disconnected from, from that. And it might be a good idea for us to look at um, the ways that, uh, that we, we could survive initially and the way that civilization did originally develop. So, for example, the development of cheese making, so that you could actually store the milk and keep the, the cheese for the winter months. So we do a project with a young couple of, of cheesemakers who have their own sheep. A few years ago, I was really couldn't eat the typical Tuscan sheep's cheese that, that, that you found locally anymore because most of the, the cheese was being made with milk that was, that was being bought in. And sometimes people were buying in curds from Poland. And you couldn't really get real ricotta anymore. The uh, cheese makers were adding milk or cream to the mix. So technically, what was being sold as ricotta is not actually ricotta. So I was like, I can't eat this stuff anymore. I want to find the ricotta that I used to eat with the local people, which they made um, fresh from their own sheep 30 years ago. Because Tuscan, the Tuscan diet, the Tuscan recipes are incredibly, incredibly simple, but they rely on really good ingredients. So all of the tortelli, all of the ricotta-based dishes, like wonderful stinging nettle soup with, with ricotta cheese in it, you couldn't really make anymore because there was this horrible, stodgy, fat ricotta. And I was bemoaning this. And I thought, well, I've got to find someone who's still making real ricotta. And there are people in Tuscany doing it, but it's quite rare and it's quite difficult to get, get hold of them. So I found this young couple who have their own sheep and they make real real cheese and real pecorino and they only use their own milk. I was so pleased to see a young couple who both had been to university, um, you know, one had studied literature and the other was, you know, studied business. They both said, we're going to go back to, to the family farm and, and make a, a proper business out of it. Fantastic couple. They're going to come and do some cheese making with us. So they will literally be, bring a pail of um, freshly milked milk and everyone will make ravagiola, which is a type of curd. It's like a sort of junket. We'll make the cheese, the pecorino cheese, and we also make ricotta. Um, so it's quite magical because all of that appears out of this pale, pale milk. So it'll be a selection. We then also have um, introductions to some of the basic staples of, like uh, the cheese, like olive oil, 
uh, light wine. And obviously we're surrounded by vineyards and olive groves here. So we're going to get people to have a, a good old hands-on experience, uh, do a bit of picking. So they're actually, you know, gathering, working in the winery. So we're going to get people to actually really get hands-on experience. We'll get people making cheese and we'll take them down to look at all of the Etruscan winemaking stones. And all of that will then be peppered with talks by producers, by people who are interested in food ethics, nutritionists. We've got someone who is uh, has a publishing company that, that publishes books about ecology and, and you know food issues. We will also be talking to people who are cooking and what they think about ingredients. It's going to be a week of very intensive conversations because we want it to really be a symposium as well so there'll be a lot of conversations and exchange with you know experts in, in, in the field and that will also then you know go hand in hand with actually eating and drinking and you know the conviviality that we want to, to, to make sure everyone understands is the conviviality that is created out of um out of food and wine and doing things together. And that, I think, will give people an insight, really, into um, how disconnected um, we've become. Most people these days don't really eat together. They don't cook together. They go out. They, they won't sit down and share a meal together and, you know, break bread. It, and I think that's, that's very sad when you see people um, sitting down and, actually being able to converse and not just looking at their, their, their phones and computers and watching films. It's a, it creates a community and it creates an exchange of information, which is, which is very important. I think that that's probably one of the most important things about, about the symposium is the idea that we pull all of this into the future, get some good examples and apply it to what's happening, what's happening now. So the project of the castle itself um, is very much, we call it the, the 21st century castle. So we're really using it as this sort of model of something that's survived into, into our times. Really looking at it in a, in a modern way and making what it stands for applicable and, and accessible to modern generations and generations for the, for the future. The Terroir Tuscany Symposium, which runs November 3rd to the 10th, 2018, will be hosted by Charlotte Horton, as well as the Terroir Hospitality Symposium, founded by Arlene Stein. Although this symposium will focus, as Charlotte mentioned, on how Etruscan agricultural and culinary practices can inform modern foodways, the Terroir Symposiums have been running for over 10 years, held all over the world, focusing each time on different food and drink issues, from New York to Warsaw to Beijing to Tel Aviv. If you're interested in attending the upcoming symposium in Tuscany, tickets are still available via the Terroir website at terroirtalk.org Tuscany. We'll also include information about tickets and a link to their site on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. We'll also include pictures of those famous Tuscan winemaking stones, but the only thing you won't find on there is the Georgian votary card of the Madonna with Vines that Charlotte mentioned which, if anyone has a copy of, I'm dying to take a look at. So if you do happen to have one lying around, please send a picture of it to the feast at thefeastpodcast.org. Of course, you can always connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at feast underscore podcast. 
A huge thank you to my guest today, Charlotte Horton, as well as Arlene Stein. And, of course, to the Shilda Choir for their beautiful singing. I'm going to go grab a glass of good Italian wine and have another listen. And if you're a wine drinker, I suggest you do the same. The Feast is written and produced by Laura Carlson, with editing by Mike Port. Music today included clips, of course, from the Shilda Choir of Georgia, as well as Rossini's The Italian Girl in Algiers and Verdi's String Quartet in E minor. That's all for us this week. Join us next time as we keep uncovering the great meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.